America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. Time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Good morning, and welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. On another rainy Sunday morning in California, we complained a lot, didn't we, about how dry and hot it was in October. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, I was out last night, and every intersection was flooded. So, um, from one extreme to another, but there are, I noticed this morning amid the clouds reaching down over the hills of the that surround the the valley we call Silicon Valley, um, that there are little green shoots in the dry golden hills. So, yeah, seasons are changing. And, you know, this morning we have really tough competition for this hour as the 49ers prepare to take on the New Orleans Saints. At oh, wait, the Niners are on right now? They'll, oh, well, in half let's, an, let's fire that thing up. In, Screw the show. Let's watch the Niners. Well, it'll be, it'll be the pre-show in half an hour. We'll, oh, we'll oh be, we're, not, we're not actually going up against the 49ers. No, Vince, we are going up against the pre. The pre-game show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I should be I watching afford, the pre-game show then. What am I doing here? I, I hope you're working. You're helping me make this entertaining as well as informative. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll, I'll skip the pregame show. You can skip the pregame and, and we'll watch the kickoff at 10 o'clock. This past week has been a crazy week. you know. No way. And we had another crazy week. We had another crazy impossible. week. Impossible. How, how is that even possible? I'm beginning to wonder. I have lots of questions. I don't have a lot of answers, but I have a lot of questions. Um, but did you see Saturday Night Live last night? I did, yes. Yes, well, that talk about an all-star opening. The uh, NATO cafeteria scene. The NATO scene. cafeteria yeah, scene was, was, good. Was, uh, was really, really good. Um, that was the best part of the show. I tuned out shortly thereafter. Yeah, pretty much that show is the, the opening scene. Uh, the cold open is where they put all the money into it. And then it uh, just kind of tails off. The cold. I, I don't know that they actually have to pay that much to get these guys to do this because it is such a prestigious point. And for most of them, um, they are alum, except for Alex Baldwin, they're all alum of Saturday Night Live. So I don't think it was that hard for, um, for Michaels to get them to come and do that. I, I think they kind of like to do it. But anyway... Um, I watched that, and then I fast-forward through, um, um, you know, I've seen that, that dress that, that, J-Lo? Jennifer, that J-Lo was. J-Lo, 50 years old now. Yeah. Doesn't she look fantastic? Absolutely. Doesn't look a day over 25. Not a day over 40. I was trying to be nice. Well, I'm keeping it real. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, she's 
she is an amazingly talented person. Um, but I think that dress that at the end of her opening number was over the top. You know, at at age fifty, you can, you, you it's what the first Governor Brown used to say in the days of um, topless dancers and singers in uh, on the in broad on the Broadway area in in San Francisco and North Beach. And he used to say, women are more alluring by that which they conceal than that which they reveal. I think by the time you get to 50, yeah, the evening gown needs to have a little more body to it. You know, I mean, you can still be very sexy. Um, as, you know, Nicole Kidman demonstrated at the CMAs, she had a dress with a jewel neck and and, and she still stole the show, and long sleeves, and she still show, stole the show because it's how you carry it, how you wear it. But anyway, my normal habit is to watch the opening and then to go to the This Week second um, section with Colin Jost. And then after that... Oh, yeah, I'm, the news, the weekend update. That's yeah, a good one, too. That's yeah, usually that's, pretty good. That's usually pretty good. And after that, I'm done. I got to go to bed because I have to get up and do this show. So much for Saturday Night Live, but it was an interesting week. You know, it was such an interesting first week of December that somehow amidst all of this, um, we missed both the lighting of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and the National Christmas tree. They didn't even they didn't even make the news. There was so much going on. So we had a week of contrasts with the president on the world stage while the House of Representatives was offering a one-day class in constitutional law. Now, I enjoyed that class in constitutional law. When, when I was an undergraduate, you know, I debated long and hard between business school and law school. Um, and, and so um, I thought it was really interesting. Um, but why do they have to, I mean, Especially when you're trying to convince the population of the United States to your position, whether it's pro or against impeachment, the concept that you start these hearings at 9 o'clock Eastern time means that at least half of the population in the country is either still asleep or frantically trying to get their kids out of bed and off to school. You know, as I said to someone at, a, at an event last night, um, if the Founding Fathers had envisioned the continental United States we are today, they'd have put the capital somewhere around maybe Nebraska, you know, um, somewhere in a more central location. But that being the case, um, you know, I'm, I'm, because I'm not really a morning person, getting up at 6 a.m. is not my idea of real fun. But... We had the president on the world stage, the House of Representatives offering this one-day class in constitutional law, and somehow there was a whole lot of of America going on under you know w- without any big headlines. The country was rolling forward, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, in a way, it, it it's a testimony to the so-called free enterprise system. You know, the less government intervention there is, the more successful our businesses are. Um, And this week we created 
a better-than-expected jobs report. We've had an incredibly healthy start to the holiday shopping season. Congress, Congress, both houses of Congress have agreed to and passed 12 real live spending bills for fiscal uh, 2019-2020. And the Democratic primary field has continued to shrink. And Elaine Chao has wrought an administrative miracle at the Department of Transportation, if only the facts will bear out the statistics. So it's been a really busy, busy week. But I'm here to tell you those are the headlines, not the stuff of, um, you know, people making, people have at a reception at Buckingham Palace or um, our one-day class in constitutional law. The month of November saw 266 thousand new jobs. Part of that really good jobs number is, of course, the return of tens of thousands of General Motors workers who were on strike during last month's reporting period and thus were not counted. And what we're going to do is take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to say Merry Christmas, uh, and no, there's not going to be a recession in 2020. We'll be back in just a minute. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So let's repeat that number cuz it's really good. 266,000 new jobs in the month of November. And again, few of our friends from from GM going back to work or a contributor. But here's the underlying fact. We have seen four consecutive months now of less than 4% unemployment. And that's amazing, absolutely amazing, in an economy that has seen 11 years of economic recovery since the crash of 2008. Joe um, Galvin, who is the chief research officer at Vistage, an association of small business owners and executives, said that while he acknowledged to New York Times reporters that the uncertainty surrounding our trading partnerships is, quote, unnerving, you know, he did say, and I'm going to quote, people feel good about their prospects. You can't have a recession when there is full employment, unquote. And I, I agree with that. I, I feel it. Um, I feel it. Hey, <laughs> I feel it every time I go to the hub and pick up the packages. I am the queen of online shopping. Um, and and um, c- consumers are feeling confident. Um, I, I, I ventured out uh, only to peek at one of the neighborhood shopping centers on on Black Friday, you know, I have rules in my life, and one of my rules is I don't go to a shopping center on Black Friday. I just don't do it. Um, but I did drive by, and, and, you know, there were lines out the door. So um, I think the consumer is feeling pretty confident, um, and I think that's really important. I, I was on the phone with Adidas yesterday chasing down a holiday order, 
and the customer service person I spoke with told me that their call center volume during Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend was 15 times, repeat that, 15 times their normal volume and far exceeded their expectations and their planning. Because one of the things that I noted was that the the so-called chat box, you know, which I would usually use to just follow up on an order, was not, a, it didn't show up on the website because they were so overwhelmed with customers. Now, that is fabulous news for the American economy. Estimates are that Americans spent $11 million a minute on Black Friday. That's the period beginning at midnight on Thanksgiving to midnight on Black Friday. $11 million a minute in a 24-hour period, every minute. That's a lot of spending. And that was topped off by a one-day $9.4 billion Cyber Monday, you know, sales, extra incentives, um, in one day alone, $9.4 billion was spent. And why am, why am I so focused on those numbers? Because the American economy is 70% consumption. So what makes our economy so big is not the total amount of money. Um, it is the speed with which it changes hands. And so economic growth and the service jobs that come out of it are driven by this level of consumer spending. So if the consumer feels good that their job is secure and they can afford to spend money for this Christmas, we're going to see some retailers who were on the verge um, actually be able to sustain themselves um, through this holiday period. So, but there are still some reasons to be cautious. In other words, and in the 11th year, of an economic expansion. A lot of what's happening is happening because of laissez-faire, um, a fewer, fewer regulations, less enforcement. Um, and um, some of that I agree with, some of that I don't agree with, but overall laissez-faire is letting this economy do what it does best, and that is, um, you know, attract consumer dollars. Um, so I, I think that's good, but we are also doing it at the expense of um, extremely low interest rates, which allows the government to go into more debt. So at some point, we are going to have to pay the piper. Just isn't going to be in the foreseeable future. So um, the other thing that we need to look at with some caution is that we've got this historically low unemployment, but wages are not going up. Um, the average wage increase, we have a full employment market, right? And the average wage increase was seven cents an hour. And that's because of the skills mix. Fewer qualified workers means that the rate of job growth has slowed from comparative periods in in uh, the last few years. In other words, if you really look at it statistically over the years, this is a heck of a great economy for the 11th year of expansion. 
but expansion begins to the rate of expansion has to be reduced uh, because there are fewer skilled workers available, et cetera. And so that presents a couple of new but really positive challenges to the economy, which is if you need people with certain skills and those skills are not available in the marketplace, you as an employer have to figure out how you can train the worker that isn't a, a perfect match but is a match um, can you train that person? Can you give them those additional skills that they need that would help them to earn more money? Can you work with your community colleges to create um, uh, a pipeline of people who have better skills um, to match your jo- your the jobs, for ex- ex- example, um, in the clean energy sector? Um, and, and so these are things that private enterprise, in order to be successful and continue to grow, are going to have to grapple with and solve. That that doesn't mean it is a public-private effort. It doesn't mean that we don't have to make demands for educational reform that produce kids with better math and, um, and science skills and better English communication skills. In other words, the ability to write clearly, to write a report, to, um, you know, to answer a customer complaint, et cetera, requires the ability to write a coherent sentence and spell it correctly. Um, because most of your chat rooms will tell you when you spell something incorrectly, but unlike Word, they don't give you a choice of, you know, here's the correct spelling. Um, this is also true at tw- on Twitter. If you, uh, <clears throat> if you participate, you see a lot of interesting spellings. Um, but, but the qualified worker problem is going to be a one of the real challenges of 2020 you know how business solves that um that problem will have a lot to do with the continuation of this economic growth and we need to be discussing that and we need to be uh we need to hear candidates on the um on the uh campaign trail talking about the practicalities of 2020 and not the amorphous um, concepts that somehow what's wrong with our educational system is, is that we underpay our teachers. No, we undervalue education. Stop and think about that for a minute. It doesn't end when you finish high school or college. We as a nation undervalue education. And it's going to be our private sector that's going to demand those changes finally. But I don't hear that on the campaign trail. I hear about free college. I hear about a lot of stuff like that. But I don't hear about the substance of the importance of a manufacturing sector in this country, which is shrinking for two reasons. The trade issues, which are affecting raw materials, and the need for qualified workers and how to get those qualified workers. And that, those qualifications are coming increasingly from creative solutions by the private sector. 
getting kids in high school and giving them internships and lots of other kinds of things. Um, and the other thing that we need to look at in this economy is part-time versus full-time work. Because part-time workers, you know, if you have to have two or three jobs to keep a roof over your head, um, that curtails the rate at which wage growth takes place because people um, are competing for more than one position. But my bugaboo continues to be that even with full auto industry back to production, the all-important manufacturing sector growth continues to be anemic. And you know what's driving that? Trade wars with China and Brazil and the European Union and now with France. I mean, we're going to put a 100% tax on Vivclicot right before New Year's? Give me a break. Because American, in, American manufacturing depends on subassemblies and raw materials coming from overseas to fuel its assembly lines. And, the, and, and we also need to be working hard at developing markets for made-in-USA products in, in, in both the developed world and the developing world. And we'll be back in just a moment with a little bit more about the economy. More good news than bad news. But there is opportunity for improvement. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And let's talk for just one more minute about the manufacturing sector. And, and the need, you know, we, we've uncovered um, in a bipartisan way in Congress the fact that 80% of the medications that we take um, in the United States are dependent on manufacturers in China, some of, sometimes manufacturers who don't meet the standards they're supposed to, for the active ingredients in our medications, our blood pressure medications, our antibiotics, you know, our, a lot of our cancer drugs, um, um, drugs that are used in um, routine surgeries, etc. The active ingredients over time, 80% of, that, of the manufacture of those active ingredients has moved to China. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a national security imperative. In a world in which China is going to compete with the United States for, uh, be, to, to be the indispensable nation um, and, and with a very different set of values. And so as we talk about manufacturing and the need for a manufacturing, a robust manufacturing component in the American economy, I think we need to look at some of those issues that say, yeah, we need to be a bit more self-sufficient in terms of our ability to, I mean, the Chinese have actually said, I mean, just think we could cut off um, their drug supply in, in short order. I don't think that's a tolerable situation, and that would require rebuilding a significant portion 
of manufacturing capability within the United States. And I think it's a national security priority. And Congress should be working with the drug industry to make that happen at the same time that they're working on the two big priorities that they currently have with the um, drug industry, and that is pricing and um, controlling the distribution, the sale and distribution of opiates. Um, and, and yes, doing their fair share to overcome the opiate um, epidemic that they created. So I'm not letting the drug industry off the hook, but I do believe it is a national security uh, imperative for us to rebuild our basic manufacturing capability in that area, as it is in things like metals. But enough, that's a, that's a subject we could spend an entire hour on. So let's look at where we've got issues in our um, in our economy, and one of those is the agricultural sector, really badly hurt by the ongoing trade dispute with China. To date, since the um, Trump administration set out to um, place tariffs on Chinese products, um, and China retaliated by saying, well, then we won't buy ag agricultural products from you. Since that period, which is now about 18 months, the federal government has paid those farmers $38 billion, B billion dollars in subsidies to make up for some of the losses in their market. That's not enough to have staved off a record number of bankruptcies in the agricultural sec sector. And at this point, and still con to continue to be bigger, at this point, that's as much as the TARP bailout funds to the auto and related industries that the Obama, the first Bush did a little bit, and then Obama did the majority of that for the U.S. auto industry. And, you know, I can still remember the you and cry about $38 billion to a private sector um, enterprise in, in terms of um, bailing them out and support, you know, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And the same thing is true of the bank bailouts. Now, the reality is that um, TARP and the bank bailouts stabilized an economy um, that was in freefall. And so um, Paulson and, and Bush don't get enough credit for what they did to prevent uh, a recession from turning into a depression uh, that would have had global impact. Um, and, and TARP was, you know, the Bush administration gave some initial funding to the auto industry, and then the big deal was done by uh, the Obama administration. But the difference between that, the TARP program and the bank bailout, and the $38 billion in farm subsidies that the current administration has made. There's a very significant difference while the dollars are similar. And that is that every penny of TARP was repaid to the United States Treasury with interest. Every penny 
of the bank bailout money was repaid to the Treasury with interest. The U.S. government made money out of those loans. $38 billion in farm subsidies are just that. They're a cost to the Treasury. And so finding a solution to this Chinese trade agreement is a 2020 priority. Um, It's extremely important because um, our our global farming um, industry depends on its ability to export uh, because we're the most productive farmers in the world. So for us to sustain that, we need those export markets and we need... Uh, China not to create long-term deals with the Brazilians for soybeans, et cetera, at our expense. So bottom line, farmers need markets. They don't need subsidies. And by the way, one of our significant strategic advantages in in terms of our global geopolitical um, conflicts with China or, or you know, um, competition with China is that we, unlike the Chinese, can feed ourselves. We are food self-sufficient and the Chinese are not. So protecting our agricultural industry is, again, a national security imperative. Doesn't get enough attention in the, on the evening news. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about who gets credit for this. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back to talk about who gets some credit for all of this great economic news, except for our poor, our brethren in the agricultural sector who are really having uh, a tough time. Buy an extra package of cheese when you go to the grocery store, please. The president and Congress get some of the credit for this growth. A focus on deregulation and simplification. I'm not a fan of coal because I'm a rational person and I believe that, you know, we we pollute ourselves. I mean, you, you can't escape. You don't have to talk about climate change or even the weather. All you have to do is is look out your window at the brown and then say, I, I really shouldn't be breathing this in. And think about the rates of asthma, et cetera, in our children. Cleaning up the atmosphere is important, right? So, but, there, but regulation needs to be um, simple and effective. But, but it also needs to recognize um, opportunity. So... I think the president and Congress do get credit uh, for some of this continued growth. I mean, the focus on deregulation, on simplifying regulations, on lower taxes. But a whole lot of credit also goes to the Federal Reserve, which has been very conservative in how it's managed interest rates up and down to accommodate the spending cycle while controlling incredibly effectively the rate of inflation. So I think they get a lot of credit 
Um, and then you, when you think, when you think of what what's possible, how well we are doing, and you think about what is possible if only the administration and Congress could agree on legislation to tackle the cost of prescription drugs and drug coverage. You know, to see a, a, a leveling off and a flattening of prices for prescriptions. You know, but without Congress doing anything. So you want to see how, how the free market works, okay? If you want to see why you don't need top-down regulation of the market once you, you, you give the market some general direction, the cost of health insurance is actually going down, as underwriters gain more confidence in their ability to manage the wide fluctuations in spending among their covered pool of insured. And the more that we can do on the prescription drug pricing, um, the better that, that measurement of insurance, because medication is really, really important to the 5% of people who are 50% of our healthcare spending. Let that one sink in for a moment. 5% of the population attributes is, is, is 50% of the health care spending, and the other 50%, 50% spend about $250 a year. Kind of shocking, right? But, but if Congress and the administration can agree on some prescription drug pricing improvements, like published pricing and uh, negotiated rates for things like Medicare, you know, in the same way they do for the Veterans Administration and Department of Defense, um, I think we can see the market respond with really good pricing. And we can see how well doing nothing, in other words, Congress being at, at a deadlock on, on how to improve the existing um, Affordable Care Act, uh, has has in given the market, the insurance marketplace, time to adjust, and prices are coming down, and competition is increasing, and the if the opportunities within you know to get better coverage um, are real. Now that does not mean that we don't still need improvements, that we don't need um, you know to broaden coverage to make sure people everybody's got coverage. We can do these things with some direction from the government and some help for those people who can't help themselves. But other than that, we can see right here. I mean, I just got my new card for next year and my copays went down. And, and that is due to the free market figuring out what the right balance was, how to underwrite this bigger insured population. Um, and, and so um, I'm looking forward to seeing a new prescription drug bill. Uh, it won't be H.R. 3 because that can't get through the Senate, but the Senate has another bill, um, and, and they're going to meet in the middle. So we will get something there. And whether we resolve the big trade dispute with China or not in 2020, I see some huge opportunities in new manufacturing and raw material production within the United States and other trading partners. As I said, I think we I think it's a national security imperative that we bring home the, some of the manufacturing 
of the um, active ingredients in the drugs we take so that we make sure they are pure and effective um, and, um, and affordable. The energy marketplace is nothing but opportunity. Um, we're not going to end our dependence on oil overnight, but we are the most creative people on earth. You know, I, I don't know that I'm comfortable with the concept of autonomous cars, I, you know, sitting behind the, the, the wheel and, and letting a computer do the driving. I'm not sure about that. But I am sure that if we told the auto industry, you have five years to produce a fully self-contained um, sustainable vehicle with a range of 400 miles or more that we could get there. I would be very surprised if the if the auto industry is not already working on prototypes to get us there. And that's going to create from the research to the manufacturing to the construction of different kinds of assembly lines, thousands and thousands of great new jobs. Whether you believe in climate change or not, um, and as you watch, um, you know, the sea level rise, it's hard not to. Um, there are all sorts of mitigations that are possible, and that though that the mitigation effort is a private sector opportunity. I mean, there is and things like waste recycling, you know, plastic, a major polluter. Okay, there is a company right here in Silicon Valley which is developing um, uh, techniques to actually render uh, plastic um, waste products, things like, in, like single-use bottles, uh, to render them um, you know, inert. In other words, to dissolve them and to do it in a way which is actually biologically efficacious to the environment. Um, and we also know that we can grow tons more crops if we can capture carbon because carbon carbon capture and sequestration in our fields is a, is a source of, um, think of it as a fertilizer. So there are all these incredible opportunities. And that is why it is so important, so important that Congress actually stop dickering around um, and finally pass, I, I don't care if you want to call it NAFTA 2.0 or the USMCA, I don't really, really care which name you give it. I just want to pass a treaty that makes sense. And, and finally, after three years of negotiation, finally close this deal because it's good for the American economy it's good for the mexican economy and we have to do everything we can to improve the legitimate economy of mexico and it is good for the canadian economy and we all got to be friends so nafta 2.0 as i like to call it is really really important and what is equally important is that we get a good deal with the european union we export more to the European Union than anywhere else in the world. So tariff barriers are not good. And the European Union sees American manufacturing as a huge opportunity. BMW, Mercedes, Audi, 
all do more, more, all you know, more manufacturing uh, in the United States than the American market. All the three series BMWs sold in the world are actually made in USA. You don't want to impose tariffs that make that that drive up costs for German automakers and make them think about taking that production home. And there is one little wrinkle on the horizon. You knew I'd come up with something to worry about because it's the nature of who we are. One thing that really could hurt U.S. manufacturing in 2020 and its growth prospects is if China and the European Union get together as they are trying to do right this very moment on a carbon pricing agreement. I know while we've all been um, focused on Buckingham Palace and the um, trade and and the um, impeachment hearings, uh, there's been a huge climate conference going on in Madrid, and it looks like China and the European Union are working on a carbon pricing agreement. Who is not at that table? We're not at that table. And if you are not at that table and you are the biggest economy in the world, who are you are going to be the target of that pricing agreement. And that is a huge risk to us, and it's an unforced error. And in this final minute that we have, let's think about congressional spending bills. We've passed all 12 of them in both houses, but there's no money for the wall in any of these bills. And so you know what that is raising? The prospect of in the days before Christmas. So I'm going to warn you about this. I don't know that I think it's going to happen, but I need to warn you in case you're planning to travel over the holidays that the current... Um, the current spending, um, uh, temporary short-term spending bill expires on December 20th. And there's no money for a wall. And there are some people who think that could lead us to a holiday government shutdown. And we'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. We have just a couple of minutes left to wrap things up today. So, let me remind you that if you want to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed today or listen to a podcast of this program, please go to ricochet.com or reimagineamerica.org and hit the radio hour button at the top right. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week. I've kind of put off having guests because things have been so um, week-to-week unpredictable. Um, But one of the things I want to avoid is talking about... um, the endless drum beat for and against impeachment. Um, I think it is time for the Supreme Court to weigh in on the limitations of presidential autonomy under the Constitution. 
And after the Supreme Court's done that, then I think we may have to have another conversation for or against um, the impeachment question. And and while I appreciate as a history major um, the constitutional lesson, um, I think I think the people's business needs to get done. We need to avoid a government shutdown in ten days from now. Um, that would not lead to a Merry Christmas, would it? So, I'm not sure what next week will bring. Um, it may be climate change or race relations or maybe um, prescription drugs. Or it may actually be something like a discussion of um, the impact of the Internet on our politics. Remember, while you're out shopping, to buy one thing that says on it, Made in America, to create 65,000 well-paid manufacturing jobs in the United States of America. Have a great week, and we'll talk Sunday. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.